0: As she said, my name is uh, Jeremy Adler. I'm a practicing uh, PA in Southern California, San Diego. And uh, next year is my 20th year in practice. And I've seen a few things over the years, maybe not as uh, many as some, but certainly more than others. And I'm sure many of you in the room here have had your share of aberrant behaviors that you've encountered. And certainly when I talk to healthcare professionals, who practice in pain, practice in certainly other areas of medicine, emergency medicine, primary care, and other spaces. Aberrant behaviors are the things that make people crazy, right? Just crazy, and for a lot of people, these are the things that they just they don't want to uh, deal with. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've seen records from referring providers who basically say, you know, no more meds until you go to pain management, or or just I I'm I'm done, I'm out, and uh, and uh, I need help. So what I hope to do is to use some case studies, just uh, things I've encountered. These may or may not be the most representative of aberrant behaviors that are out there, but I think there are some points that can be learned. And thought about and, and really, the goal of this is not to have you end this session with really a whole new set of tools and ideas on how to specifically address specific aberrant behaviors, but hopefully you'll leave here with at least some idea as how maybe to approach it and how to think about it and and uh, and hopefully we'll have a little bit of fun along the way. Uh, oh, that's me. Okay. So this is our objectives. We're going to talk about some opioid monitoring tools. Differential diagnosis when evaluating patients with aberrant behaviors, and we're going to talk about some strategies. So we're going to start off with questions. I'd like to do this uh, by hand uh, here. So uh, if you guys can participate with my program, I think it'll be much more fun, certainly for me. And um, let's see where we go. Question one: Which of the following is a false? Which of the following is false regarding a definitive urine drug test having a methamphetamine level present? Is it false that a positive result is consistent with methamphetamine use? False? Or is that true? That's true. A positive result can be consistent with a legitimate prescription medication. (laughs) All right, I hear true, false, true, false. Okay, we're mixed on that. A positive result can be consistent with a legitimate over-the-counter medicine. False, true. True, okay. A positive result is always definitive for illicit drug use. All right, finally we get something really strong. Okay, we'll come back to this at the end here. A primary source of opioids for individuals who misuse them is from a patient who misuses their own medicines, a patient who is actively doctor shopping, a friend or a family member, or Internet sales. See? Okay. Okay. A positive definitive result on a urine toxicology report always indicates that the tested substance is present in the specimen. A positive definitive result, so quantitative. Not that I'm trying to talk you out of your answer. I'm just making sure you understand the question. All right, let's go through and uh, let's go ahead and get started. First of all, I am using cases that uh, I have encountered, so I've tried to de-identify them in terms of HIPAA stuff. Every situation is unique. So, the way that, uh, or the things that we observed in our practice may be different than your practice. Things that we did in our practice certainly may be different than what you do in your practice. And there often is one, more than one appropriate response, meaning that uh, there isn't just a right way and a wrong way. There's often many, many right ways and, and probably many wrong ways. So, how do we start off when we think about opioid management? So, before we get into the aberrant behaviors, that means that we've already given a patient an opioid. So, I'd like to start off just saying, Big picture, this is not the emphasis of this discussion, but just, when you prescribe opioids, you have to make sure that you're doing it appropriately. Well, who's appropriate? These are people that you've conducted a history in physical on, you've established a diagnosis, you've worked them up, you've considered things like their substance use history, if they have a history of abuse, alcohol, drugs, if they have a psychiatric history, family history, records. And I put that in bold, or capitalized. Why did I put records in in capitalized? What's that? Past history, records are so important, so important. Uh, patients don't understand that. You know, it's, in, a, in a pain practice, rarely does somebody start an opioid in your practice. Usually these are people that are taking them prior to coming in. And they just have their story and don't understand why records are so important. I look at patients sometimes and I think, wow, okay, you're telling me you've had 10 years of this chronic pain condition And you're upset at me because I need a few days to gather some records that weren't presented at the time of the consultation. It just doesn't quite make sense. So records are really key. We risk assess, like ORT and and, uh, the SOPAR. How many of you use risk assessment tools routinely in practice? Great. And these are important. These are things that uh, really do help shape patient selection. Certainly PDMPs. I'm just curious. How many of you are in states that mandate legislatively that you check PDMPs? Yeah, we're watching this spread across the country now, where the uh, the legislatures think this is the uh, the answer. So we're we're being forced to uh, to use them. Not that I'm not a big advocate, I am. But it's interesting seeing us being uh, forced uh, clinically. You're in drug testing. How many of you use are in drug testing in practice? Great, really important tool. And of course. You need to get consultations. Um, One of the things I think that is so great about Pain Week is it pulls together people from various backgrounds all into one space with a commonality of pain being the thing that links us. When dealing with patients or addressing patients in an optimal way, you really have to address more than just certainly the symptom of pain. You have to rehab them physically, rehab them mentally, have them work with addiction medicine and psychology, and and really the team-based approach, I think, is the the most successful and, and best approach. And you have to monitor these people. Just because at one point in time they were at low risk and didn't exhibit signs of problems or aberrant behaviors, that can change, right? So we have to continually reassess, reevaluate what it is that we are doing. There may be times at which we need to get new referrals, get new imaging, and um, we need to see them frequently. In terms of the source. I think this uh, graph uh, appears probably across many different uh, programs here, at Pain Week and others, and I think it's just so important. This is, the, this is the survey conducted by SAMHSA, federal government data, on the source of opioids when people misuse them. And this is looking at a variety of sources, and what's so striking about this is the number of people that misuse opioids who get them without a prescription. The majority, about 60 to 70 percent, get them without a prescription. Now where do they get them? They get them from our patients, right? So we are involved in that circuit to a certain degree, but diversion and the leaving of legitimate uh, practice uh, is something that is really significant. The PDMPs, which I think are great, on this graph would suggest uh, 1.4% get them through doctor shopping. So although doctor shopping is a real issue, the lion's share here is is really on the uh, diversion. But that doesn't mean that patients who sit in front of us won't have problems and that's really when now we're talking about aberrant behavior. So I'm going to, to shift away from the diverted drug and, because those patients, we don't people we don't ever see. But the people who sit in front of us might exhibit some behaviors that have us concerned, and we have to decide, is this a situation that's appropriate? Is it inappropriate? Are they having a substance use disorder? Is this just something random that occurred? What is happening when these behaviors uh, present themselves? Now, in our practice, uh, we've been practicing what we call the four Cs. Actually, a colleague of mine is here. We put this together probably 15 years ago. And this is if a patient exhibits really a first-time kind of low-risk behavior. I mean, if we find one of our patients who's crushing up pills and injecting them, that's not low risk. Okay? But if you have somebody who, let's say, they're two days early on a 30-day prescription the first time that you gave them a medication, I don't know so much about that. I have to dissect that a little bit deeper. So... What we try to do when we approach these behaviors is be very systematic, and that is the first step is we want to counsel them in person. So we bring them into the office, and they need to look at us and tell us what's going on. We have some behavior, lost medication, we have early refills, something has occurred. We want to know from the patient what happened. So we counsel them. We generally will cut down the quantity we prescribe. So if we feel they're still a candidate and that they are appropriate to continue with an opioid or a controlled substance, we're going to reduce the amount. And we're going to collect a urine sample, certainly, as part of our assessment, and we're going to check our PDMP. And we just do this reflexively if, if somebody is having an aberrant behavior. Clinically, I kind of think of it like bear hugging. So if they are showing some behaviors of concern, we're going to sit on them and grab them. And I can tell you that in my experience of doing this for so many years, if a patient is really just seeking an opioid, I mean, they aren't trying to actually manage a chronic pain condition, they want nothing to do with you bear hugging them. They will will bolt, they will jet, they they want to fly under the radar, they will try to find somebody who is easier. And if you kind of sit on them and work with them, and if they're a patient who is trying to get better from a pain condition, you will generally find that they pretty much start to adhere to the program, that they're more participatory and you can see them actually improve. Okay, so now I'm going to jump into cases. So This is case one. This is a 48-year-old female. And uh, she has a terrible spine, if you can see it. I don't know if the light allows you to see it. She uh, has scoliosis since 1981. She's had multiple surgeries. She's had hardware in. She's had hardware out. She had the hardware taken out, and she fractured at one of the levels. They had to go back, put new hardware in, actually pending another uh, revision and extension of her uh, fusion. She has an implantable pump there, you can see, in the right lower abdomen. And she's receiving intrathecal hydromorphone. In addition to that, she has some rescue dosing of oral hydromorphone, and she doesn't have any family history of a substance abuse problem. She's never had herself a substance use history, no drug, alcohol, tobacco. Her ORT score is 2, which is a low ORT, and her PDMP is consistent. She's only getting the uh, oral hydromorphone and the intrathecal hydromorphone from us, Uh, and for years, years, probably 10 years, uh, we've been following her. But we did a uh, periodic uh, urine drug test, which we customarily do, and it came back inconsistent. And this is what we saw. We saw hydromorphone, which we expect. We saw methamphetamine and amphetamine, and she just denies it, absolutely denies it. And we look at her PDMP, and there are no entries for methamphetamine. This is not something that appears to be prescribed. So here we have a situation, right? Longstanding patient, low-risk patient. We're pretty well... um, Connected to this patient, I mean, we put a pump in her, so therefore we, we have a commitment to help this person with their chronic pain condition. And now we have methamphetamine showing up in their urine. What do we do? And they're saying that they didn't use it. Well, when faced with challenges such as this, like an inconsistent urine drug test, what I really try to advocate is that you do anything else in medicine, or do the same thing that you do anywhere else in medicine, and that is conduct a differential diagnosis. What could possibly explain this? So it could be methamphetamine abuse, right? I mean, we just got a methamphetamine in her urine. She could be abusing methamphetamine and just lying to us, saying that she's not, but she is. She could be, I don't know, diverting. Maybe she, uh, you know, that hydromorphone is from her pump and she's been out selling her hydromorphone pills and buying methamphetamine. Could have a laboratory error. It could be a sample mix-up. Maybe our medical assistant put the wrong name on the uh, sample. Pharmacy, maybe they dispensed her methamphetamine instead of hydromorphone. Don't know. Uh, It could be a fake urine. Maybe a urine donor. Maybe she just got a sample. Maybe she's been doing something she shouldn't, so she got a urine from some other source and didn't know that that other source had methamphetamine. She could have been inadvertently exposed. Maybe somebody's trying to poison her. Um, You can go down the list. I know this is not an exhaustive list. Anyone else have any ideas? What do you think? Yep, so she said, you know, uh, it could be that uh, inadvertent exposure. Somebody, she was at work, she was falling asleep, and somebody gave her a, a pill to wake her up and didn't know it was methamphetamine, you know. Good, right? Good. yeah? I've been in California and I had uh, not medical marijuana, but street marijuana laced with Sure, so marijuana can be laced. Uh, so again, uh, she may not be aware of her consumption. So it can be, yeah. So I don't know if you heard him. He said VIX vapor rub can cause it to be uh, positive. So lots of positive, yep. <laughs> so he said, well, butcher. Now this this is actually a definitive uh, test. So, so this would not be an immunoassay. This is actually a LCMS test that you would expect it to be consistent with what uh, was found. But on a screen, on a cup, gosh, the false positives can be uh, enormous. So I, I think I might go because I'll never get through my uh, programs. But I like the interaction. There'll be lots of opportunity. I got, I got a number of cases here. Um, all right, so first of all, I did a DNL isomer. So I don't know if uh, it's common knowledge, but, but for some it is, uh, that methadone, uh, methadone. methamphetamine exists as a D and an L isomer. That uh, These are two three-dimensional structures that have all the same components, but are three-dimensionally um, uh, mirror images of each other. So I asked her. I asked her about nasal sprays. So if for the reason that was brought up, I just, I, well, I gave her every opportunity to tell me about methamphetamine, and she was clearly flustered. She had no idea. Um, so I just said, you know, do you use any nasal sprays? And she pulls out her purse, and if you can imagine this purse with a million things in it And stuff's coming out on the exam table, and, and, and everything's piling up And she's like, I do, and, and I don't know what it is And she finds, she finds this nasal spray deep down in her purse She's like, well, I've been using this, so what do you think she uh, gave me? She gave me Vicks And, and she had no idea, and, and Vicks is the Um, L-methamphetamine or the uh, S-methamphetamine, which is, uh, I'm sorry, the R-methamphetamine, which is perfectly legal. This is not a uh, uh, controlled substance. It's sold over the counter. It is methamphetamine, but in the form that it's sold, it's a nasal decongestant. It doesn't have any of the properties of the D-isomer. And the uh, D-isomer can be sorted out, and that's why we got a D-isomer level of 8%. This is pretty consistent with uh, nasal spray uh, methamphetamine. So, we uh, informed her, we continued our testing, we moved on, and, and didn't look back. But I can tell you in many settings, if somebody comes back with a laboratory analysis showing methamphetamine, that may result in a significant change in the plan of that uh, patient if the person ordering that test had no knowledge about the, uh, the impact potentially of the uh, nasal spray. Okay, case two here. This is a 45-year-old female, chronic and knee pain. She's not a candidate for knee replacement. She's taking hydrocodone. And she's had a GI bleed from NSAIDs. She's adopted and has no knowledge of her personal uh, family uh, history. Um, she tells you that she's used in marijuana in high school. She never had a DUI, though, never had problematic alcohol use. And this is another one where you get a urine sample on it, and it comes back inconsistent. Now, at the time, we were, were buying cups to do immunoassay testing in the office. And the patients would sometimes go into the bathroom, and they wouldn't have a sample, and they dropped the cup, and all these things. It was like, we're buying these cups. And we had an unlimited supply of cups without the immunoassay in it. So we got into the habit with certain patients to send them into the restroom with a basic sterile specimen cup, and then our medical assistant would pour it into the immunoassay cup to be tested. And um, at the The medical assistant had a a nose, we used to uh, tease her that she was uh, like persistently uh, uh, pregnant because she could smell everything. And um, she opens up the cup and she just, she gets this huge impact of uh, Vic's uh, vapor rub uh, smell coming out of this uh, cup. And she pours the urine and the urine falls and then this bloop, you know, falls in afterwards. All right. So what do you think? Um, it could be terrible kidney disease, right? Um, you know, my medical uh, assistant maybe had it in for the patient. Maybe they were trying to sabotage this patient. They spe- uh, tampered with the specimen. Uh, maybe the patient tampered with the specimen. Maybe the patient had heard something about VIX and, and methamphetamine and, and said, hey, maybe I need to... Uh, to do something about this sample, uh, maybe it came from the manufacturer defective. Um, any other ideas? What do you think? Why is she putting Vicks vapor rub in her uh, urine sample? What's that? So, so she said the patient did it, so we didn't know she was using methamphetamine. So that's, that's the that's the that's certainly what we thought. So we felt, yes, she's likely tampering with a specimen to hide uh, abuse, but it was actually negative for methamphetamine, which goes to show you that Google doesn't know everything because it was positive for cocaine. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't come back to us. I, I, I never got follow-up on her. All right, this is a, uh, a more recent, uh, this was a year or two ago, uh, happened in our practice. And this is a, uh, California has very strict guidance on prescription blanks uh, for scheduled drugs. And we got a call from a pharmacy for one of the physicians in our group. And the pharmacy said, Do you ordinarily write for oxycodone on weekends? Uh, now I can tell you we don't ordinarily write for oxycodone 30 milligrams to begin with, but they wanted to know if we write it on weekends. They were just a little bit concerned and, and wanted verification so in california first of all they sent us a copy of the prescription and uh, you'll notice i didn't de-identify the uh, person because i have no idea who this is and um, these are all the requirements of a california prescription first of all if you photocopy it it has to say void it has to have a watermark has to have chemical and thermochromic ink opaque writing it has to have checkoff boxes and all these different items and can you see what's wrong with this prescription So so nothing, actually, is wrong with the prescription, except that it's not ours. And um, this is a situation where the... Uh, oh, yes? On the right, there's the units. There's The units? Those are pill counts in California. So this, this was not... Uh, this was not uh, our prescription pad, and uh, so, so what do you do when you find a fraudulent prescription pad out there is you call the DEA, right? So DEA was kind enough to send us a reverse PDMP, so they actually sent us a, a sample period about three months of all of the prescriptions linked to a particular prescriber as opposed to patients. Ordinarily, we don't get to see that type of data, and we found that in three months' time, there were thousands and thousands of pills that had been dispensed on this prescriber's um, uh, this pad that had nothing to do with the prescriber. So we're, of course, enraged, right? It's pretty violating as a healthcare professional to find out that somebody's made pads with your name on it and is out there filling opioids that are showing up in the state database. So we were expecting the cavalry to come in from the DEA and just, like, fix this. And what they told us, which many of you may know if you've had any experiences. This is widespread, that the people that are involved in uh, illicit opiate sales, they can print these things up, and they essentially, when they go into a pharmacy, if there's any hiccup, they just stop with that prescriber, they go on to the next, and that there really is no way for them to to really catch these. There's no investigation. They said the best they could do was actually uh, phone the pharmacies indicating our prescription pads have been compromised and that they shouldn't fill prescriptions from us, which wouldn't work so well. All right. A little frustrating uh, on the uh, provider side here. All right, so this is a different case. This goes back, this is probably 15 years ago. Uh, this is a 49-year-old male. He had post-lamidectomy syndrome, new onset radicular pain, history of Klinefelters. He's married. He's never had drug or alcohol abuse problems. He does have chronic anxiety. He is in behavioral therapy, pretty well managed. And uh, his regimen consisted of methadone and 10 milligrams every eight hours. And he's been doing this for three years, same dose. And uh, definitely successful, except he's had this new uh, radicular pain that... He was coming in to have us address. And uh, the problem, though, is he said the methadone was only lasting six hours. So he said he did really well for six hours, and uh, he just those last two hours after every dose, he felt his pain was not managed, and he wanted to take this every six hours, not every eight. So we said, well, let's treat you interventionally. We felt he was a candidate for epidural steroids. We scheduled him for an epidural steroid injection. That happens to be the following day, and he no-shows. He doesn't come in for the injection. He had a good reason and that is that he died. Um, the morning of the procedure he, uh, he uh, was found and uh, died and uh, came as a complete shock to all of us. I mean, this was a patient we knew uh, for a long time and we eventually uh, got the report from the medical examiner um, saying that he died of methadone poisoning. And uh, he has some associated factors of uh, cardiac disease but the principal diagnosis and very short after, shortly after us getting that letter, or rather not the letter, the report, we got a letter from the widow saying she was going to sue us for negligence. It kind of, you know, this shouldn't have happened. And uh, that, that's not a very good letter to, uh, to receive. So we looked at the report, and uh, we had to think about this. You know, what, what's the differential on this particular case? You know, certainly methadone overdose, right? I mean, we know that methadone is uh, associated with a number of uh, opioid-related deaths, so we had to consider that. Homicide, I mean, maybe somebody had something in for this patient. could be a lab error. Maybe the pharmacy dispensed something else or or changed the dose. Uh, Drug interactions, maybe somebody gave him something new that interacted with methadone. Uh, Maybe alcohol was involved. Lots of possibilities, potentially. But we're kind of nervous here with this particular case. Well, what was interesting is about six months prior, on the same dose, when this patient was complaining of a six-hour duration of uh, uh, relief, we actually did peak and troughs. We wanted to see, did his exposure to methadone somehow change? Did he metabolize it differently? Did he clear it differently? Why is this only lasting six hours? Uh, that's not what we generally find in our patients. So we actually did peak and trough levels. And what we found really is that the peak and trough didn't show anything. That, that pretty much his methadone at eight hour interval dosing was pretty much the same uh, each time. And uh, he didn't have a dose change. So. We actually were able to get the report from the medical examiner, the methadone level that they had based their findings on as to the cause of death. And it turns out that their level was half the, uh, the peak level, and it was lower than our trough level that we had recorded. And uh, we sent this information to the medical examiner. They looked at it, and they said, well, actually, okay, I'm going to reclassify this as a cardiac-related uh, death. And, uh, you know, sadly, I mean, that's uh, certainly cardiovascular disease is a, a serious issue, but this wasn't related to his medication therapy, which uh, certainly was important for us to, uh, to have them make that determination. OK, so this is a, uh, yes? Could that have been a so, uh, It could have been. So she said it could be a torsade. could have been, although he'd been on a stable dose for three years. Um, generally, that's going to happen more at the uh, uh, initiation of uh, methadone. Absolutely, you can get a drug interaction, which wasn't the case, but yes, that can definitely change the uh, exposure. Yeah? Did we check an EKG? So at that time, we were not routinely doing EKGs. Prior to it? So, so this particular case was about 15 years ago, and routine EKG testing was not part of our standard approach. Now, absolutely, we check EKGs, looking for QT. Uh, uh, issues. So that's a, definitely a standard, but that's something we've learned kind of over the years. How often do you do EKGs in our practice annually? Yeah. Makes you want to do a peek at I, 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 You know, I, I think that that may be a valid uh, assessment. I mean, we, we've talked about it. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a pretty impressive case uh, in terms of our, our experience. I uh, learned a lot from that. I, I didn't hear your question. I'm sorry. So it's not routine. The only re- So he asked how often we do peak and trough. I, I don't do routine peak and trough levels on patients on methadone. It just happened to be, at that time, we were kind of interested in the uh, duration of uh, relief. And I was working in a center that was uh, much more kind of academic on some of these, these issues. And uh, we did it. It wasn't routine, but it happened to be, in this particular case, very uh, relevant. So this is a case, a different case, 59-year-old male uh, with chronic, severe, and intractable, burning pain, all extremities, uh, HIV polyneuropathy. This also is, uh, this was a while ago, but uh, I remember this case uh, vividly. Uh, Also taking methadone uh, for pain. And uh, this patient did have some elevated risk factors for abuse, but he's been responsible with his medication. But we get a urine drug test and it's negative for methadone and methadone metabolite, okay? And we repeat it three times negative. Why three times? Because he comes in and he says, I'm taking methadone. I don't know what, like, this makes no sense. I'll go do it again. Test me every time you want. I'll test every single time. We test him. It comes back to negative And we're like, how do we continue to provide this patient methadone when his urine drug test doesn't show it? And then we do it again. And, and we're just, we finally reached a point where we said, look, uh, it can't, right? Okay. So what do you think? What's going on with this case? Why is his urine consistently coming up negative for methadone? Is he diverting it? Oh, yeah. Oh, is he getting pain relief? No. No. Every, stable. Medicine-wise, as a medicine, no, everything was fine. Just negative on the urine. Overtaking it. So we, we didn't have any behavioral uh, aberrancy, so he didn't refill early, he didn't uh, Report uh, inadequate analgesia he had no side effects or toxicities that we were concerned about the only real thing that stood out here was a negative uh, urine so we got to think about what are the possibilities is he diverting it I mean certainly methadone's diverted so could he be selling it is he binging Is he taking it all in the first you know month or two and not wanting to or the first week or two and not wanting to tell us so that when he comes in he is negative because it's no longer detectable is he giving us fake urine maybe he's trying to hide something else you can find fake urine out there uh, pretty easily. Uh, Or is he substituting it? Maybe somebody else, uh, he's taking it from them. Is it a lab error? You know, it could be certainly issues at the lab. Is it a pharmacy error? Maybe he's not being given methadone. The pH? It was probably within spec. I I don't recall specifically, but that would, uh, there was nothing on the, um, I'm trying to remember if that lab was doing uh, pH and specific gravity and and some sort of validity testing. I don't recall specifically on this, but there was nothing else that alerted us that there was some sort of uh, aberrancy in the urine. That's a good question. Specimen validity is uh, certainly an important part of drug testing. Yeah? So in terms of his drugs for HIV, I do not recall what he was taking for his HIV. Why, Why do you bring that up? Oh, an inducer. So clearing the methadone, so we don't detect it. Okay. Probably not it, but but I like you know the, you, to think about these things. I can tell you when people encounter aberrant behaviors, a lot of the response that we see is very knee jerk. Just I want out, boom, they act, and they don't go through a differential diagnosis to consider what might actually happen. All right, well, let me tell you what happened in this case. We get a call six months after all of this from the medical director of the lab, and they said that they identified that an element of their testing of methadone was inaccurate. And all the reports led to false negatives, and we couldn't rely on it. It was inconclusive. And um, we contacted the patient, and he was done with us. I mean, that was a bridge burned. You do the best you can, right? We didn't know. We had to act, and, and we tried multiple times. And I still, you know, this is a long time ago, and I still feel terrib- terrible about it. When we do testing on patients, and we make decisions on it, and then you find out what you made a decision on wasn't accurate, it really kind of rattles you. So ironically, I just showed you two methadone cases, and we didn't use methadone that often. So it just happened to be. So now I didn't have a bunch of cases that uh, were methadone coming up negative. Not every patient used the lab that uh, we had used for this patient. If this was your patient today, would you do anything different? Ooh, if it was my patient today, would I do something different? Yeah, I'd probably use a different lab. I think that the diversity of labs is, is much more uh, common. Uh, I may incorporate an uh, addiction medicine consultation and, and increase the team of uh, providers that have eyes on this patient. It's uh, And certainly knowing what I know through some of these experiences, I I would definitely be uh, more inclined to investigate it a little bit deeper. Oral swab didn't exist back then. But but oral swab would be a great option to to do. So do some other testing methodology. Maybe blood, maybe uh, oral swab. Something uh, uh, different than just a urine. Witness administration. I did not do witness administration. I, I don't routinely I do How many of you do witness administration of urine? <laughs> yeah? You know, it's, 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 usually we're looking for things to be positive as opposed to being completely negative. So I, I've not found that to be something that uh, I've worked into my routine. All right. Let's, uh, let's see. Where am I at? Oh, good. i got time. Uh, chronic neck pain and headaches. Uh, this is a 51-year-old female, chronic neck pain, episodic cluster headaches, refractory to all non-opioid therapy, and has been taking opioids responsibly. She has an ORT of 7, which is kind of high-moderate. 8 and above is high. Her family history is positive for alcohol abuse. She's a victim uh, herself of pre-adolescent sexual abuse. She used some cocaine in college, and under our care, her PDMP has been consistent, so we don't detect doctor shopping, and for four years her urine testing has been consistent, and then it wasn't. Came up positive with cocaine, and she denies use, there's no way, no way. So again, running through a differential diagnosis, this is cocaine abuse, laboratory error, inadvertent exposure to cocaine, you know, like uh, earlier you mentioned uh, marijuana could be laced, maybe she had marijuana, the test didn't show marijuana, but nonetheless. Uh, maybe she substituted urine. It could be fake urine. It could be other possibilities, right? Okay. A little bit more history. Six weeks ago, she had ENT surgery. Oh, that clears it up. <laughs> 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 oh yeah, yeah. I, those ENT people. Anybody practicing ENT? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, so sure enough, I know why you said oh, and that's because I. Like myself or like you, I call the ENT and say, you didn't by chance use cocaine when you did surgery on this patient. Oh sure. <laughs> okay, and I'm like thinking about cocaine six weeks ago. Six weeks ago. So I called the lab toxicologist because that didn't make sense and they said six weeks ago. They said, well maybe this is the toxicologist. Maybe there was some retained clot from surgery that had some cocaine still in it and happened to break free right at the time you tested, and it was there and you picked it up. Who likes that answer? I, don't. I mean, I went with it. I mean, so... All right. So we started testing. So we did those four C's. We bear hugged this patient, you know? So now I'm testing uh, every month, and it's coming back consistent, and and we're following the patient. All right, you know, that's really weird. Maybe I need to write this up. This is something you don't ordinarily see. But then it comes back the fourth time, now positive for cocaine. And there was no more surgery. (laughs) Big Big clot, okay. So what do you think? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. She's using cocaine? Yeah, yeah. She's abusing? All right, she still denies it. So, so what she tells me, though, this is she's like, fine. Here, this is, this is what I think is happening. She says, you know, my husband abuses cocaine, not her. And she's really concerned about his abuse. He's out of control. So she doesn't let him have access to it, but she prepares it for him in small portions. And. She must have gotten some transdermal exposure to the cocaine as she's preparing it. Yeah, I, I, I like the story. I mean, it, it, that, that didn't work so well. So we, we sent her off to addiction medicine, and, and uh, she actually refused to, uh, to go. But we, we tried to, to, to get her into, uh, into treatment. All right, 37-year-old male, chronic right ilioinguinal neuralgia, status post a hernia repair. And he intermittently has severe pain in the groin, and he takes an opioid, and things have been fine. He doesn't take very much. And uh, family history is negative. His personal uh, psychosocial uh, history is negative. His PDMB is consistent. We've tested him five times over the last maybe two years, and everything has been fine. And we get a urine now here, and this is what we get. We get oxycodone, noroxycodone, oxymorphone are all positive, and we get a norfentanyl positive. And it's, it's there, I mean, at 9.5. And fentanyl was negative. Very unexpected. Did not expect nor fentanyl in this patient's urine. So what do you think? I don't know if you've heard Jay Joshi talk about counterfeit pills, or have seen them on the news. Um, I heard about those first at Pain Week probably two, three years ago, and now it's like in the media actually quite a bit. So what do you think? Is this fentanyl? I mean, is he using counterfeit pills? Is this heroin mixed with fentanyl? We know fentanyl is now being cut with, uh, or heroin's being cut with fentanyl. Laboratory error, we've talked about that. Could it be a substitute to urine? Pharmacy error. A diversion, he's exchanging something. What do you guys think? What do you think about the urine test there with fentanyl negative, nor fentanyl positive, and uh, all of the expected findings of an oxycodone prescription? Yeah. Ah, excellent. So she brought up the fact that fentanyl won't show up in the urine. So fentanyl will not show up on an opiates immunoassay test, but you can do an LCMS test for fentanyl and its metabolite, which is what we did, and it will definitely show up in that uh, capacity. Absolutely right. It is a synthetic opioid. Counterfeit pills. She's going counterfeit pills. Counterfeit pills. What's that? <laughs> did she? <laughs> I like it. Changing the... That, that would be pretty good. I, I've not gotten that one yet. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. So that's a good one. Uh, so medical exposure. Went to the ER. Maybe had a procedure. Maybe got fentanyl through some other, uh, some legitimate means. Okay? You would remember that, that you, that you got fentanyl? Oh, yeah. Well. I didn't say he denied the fentanyl use. I just said it was there. He denied it. But, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, that, 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 but sometimes you get these reports back and the patient's not in front of you. So you're looking at this, and, and there are people who will act when they see that report. They won't go down this, this differential diagnosis. I mean, this is really one of the key points that I'm trying to make in this entire presentation, is the idea of having a differential diagnosis. Just, just think about what are some of the possibilities. Um, you don't just get that report and go, oh, I can't believe it, and, uh, and run with it. All right, so, so what happened in this case? Well, I contacted the toxicologist. I contacted toxicologists a fair amount, and I couldn't believe it. This was a big pharmacy. This is not some mom-and-pop. This is probably the biggest or second biggest in the country. And uh, they got back to me, and they said, you know what? We found a policy violation. And they said they had looked at the line of samples they had tested, and the one right before it had a very high level of fentanyl and norfentanyl. And they said it was carryover, and they had retained half the sample. They had split it. They retested the retained portion, and it was negative for fentanyl. Uh, negative for norfentanyl. And all the UDTs after that were consistent. So, yeah? This was, this was probably two years ago. Yeah. So, just to keep it in your back pocket, that... No, not on this one. This was a single sample. No, it's been consistent for years. One sample had fentanyl, which was kind of weird that it didn't have fentanyl in it. I just, it, that, I thought that was strange. Okay. Uh Oh, okay. This is a, um, a 36-year-old uh, military-dependent female, right shoulder pain from a traumatic dislocation. She's been taking Percocet. She's given two a day. She's given a script for 60 pills. Ten days later, she says, I'm out but she took it exactly as prescribed based on the prescription bottle label. You see a problem with that math, right? I'm out. So what do you think? Okay. So she's not truthful. So she took more. Maybe it got diverted. Maybe somebody took, you know, a lot of her pills away uh, from her. And uh, maybe a label error, prescription error. Maybe I wrote it wrong. Yeah. She thinks that every two hours she was taking it. Okay. So you just think she was taking more, and that when she says she's looking at that label, that uh, how could she read the label? It's taken too much to read. It. I don't know. Yeah, partial fill. Ooh, good. that's a good one. Yeah, that happens more and more these days, doesn't it? Yeah. All right, so you so it could say like take one to two q four to six hours max two a day and they just don't see the the max two a day portion of it could be all right so what do we do so looked in the medical record how did how was this written take one tablet twice daily as needed for pain okay i asked the patient to read the label take one tablet every four to six hours as needed for pain so i contacted the pharmacist i said what did you put on the bottle and they say it says take one tablet twice daily as needed for pain hmm so I said, bring in the bottle. All right, so let's, let's, uh, let's see what she brings us. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> now, now, now what's, what's quite entertaining is that top portion is from CVS, and the bottom is from the Naval Hospital of Camp Pendleton. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Nobody saw that one. I, I didn't. Okay. So uh, this is a 35-year-old female. She lives in Virginia. Multi-joint severe pain, rheumatoid arthritis, and her parents live in California in our community. And she's been taking a prescribed fentanyl patch, uh, 25 mics, Q72, and apparently it was a good outcome. And uh, she apparently in Virginia had a negative UDT and she was stopped on the fentanyl patch abruptly because they said, if fentanyl's not in your urine, you're done. She has severe pain, she's in withdrawal, and her parents bring her basically home and, and bring her to us. And, and, and I mean, everything was uh, kind of a mess. Uh, we didn't have any records. She didn't come in with any records. And, uh, and what do you think of that kind of story? Diversion, this abuse, lab error fake urine, misuse, so, so testing methodology, testing methodology, so I'm going to go right to that, absolutely, so we were able to eventually get the records and they based us on an immunoassay that came up negative for opiates, and um, fentanyl was never tested, and uh, we stabilized the patient and uh, never had an issue, this is a low risk patient, we didn't see any sort of problems or aberrancies. So it's critically important, especially as more and more healthcare professionals are pushed to utilize urine drug testing as a part of their treatment plans to understand the capabilities of what it is they actually order. Okay, um, case nine here. This is a 55-year-old male. He fell from a horse. We have lots of horse injuries in San Diego. Multiple traumatic fractures, chronic pain. He himself has a history of hydrocodone abuse and marijuana abuse. The patient does. And uh, he's been provided buprenorphine uh, for pain control, and it's worked pretty well. Urine drug tests, though, did come back, and it was positive for buprenorphine and norbuprenorphine, but also positive for caboxy THC, marijuana. And in our practice policy uh, for this patient, it's not appropriate for him to be using marijuana in conjunction with his controlled substances. So he admits it. He says, I'll stop, and we'll do more frequent urine drug testing. So we test him the next month. And it comes back, and this time carboxy THC is negative. Buprenorphine and norbuprenorphine are positive. But hydrocodone and norhydrocodone and hydromorphine are positive. And he denies hydrocodone use. So, what do you think? Get a, new lab. Get a new lab. So, lab error. Okay? You like the lab error, huh? All right. So, is it a lab error? Is it a fake urine? Is it a pharmacy error? Yeah, maybe they gave him hydrocodone. Nah. We had somebody recently with buprenorphine was dispensed bupropion, so things can happen. Um, what do you think? She thinks he's taken old, old hydrocodone. Leftover. leftover hydrocodone. They all have leftover, lots of leftover. All right, so we said you need to get an addiction consult. History of hydrocodone abuse, hydrocodone is urine. You know, we need help. This is beyond our ability to, to manage. And he says, I'm not going, I don't have addiction. So I'm going to give you a little bit more history. So a patient's wife has chronic pain. Happens to be a patient of ours as well. Legitimate chronic pain. Oh. No addiction history. But because her pain is of the severity that required an opioid, she was also taking buprenorphine because out of really respect for his addiction, she didn't want a pure opioid in the house. Okay. So basically, to get to the bottom line as to what went down, is the patient finally confessed that he had not stopped marijuana, and he was not wanting us to find marijuana, so he took some urine from his wife, but he didn't know that she was taking hydrocodone, who was also our patient, which was not appropriate. And anyway, that, that we, we kind of left it at that. Uh, question, yeah. Yeah. So he asked, so, so how did that happen? I You know, that's a great question. I, he went into the bathroom alone, but he must have had some container that had the sample. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, sorry, you're both uh, talking. I'm sorry. I work for the VA, and we have a lot of kind of complications around HIPAA and whether the patient's report, especially when we have couples, that if one reports something on the other, it's not necessarily actionable items. Okay. So in terms of HIPAA, we 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 talked to both of them. Yeah. It was pretty clear it was a problem. Yeah, this this was, she wasn't like denying it and saying everything was fine with her. Yeah. So did you counsel and or discharge both of them? Yeah, yes, yeah. This this was the end of, of, of relationships. And and ordinarily we don't discharge patients, but this this we felt was was beyond uh, um, what we were comfortable uh, with a trusting relationship working with somebody with chronic pain. Yeah. Okay, this is a, uh, a different kind of patient here. This is a 62-year-old male who's paraplegic, secondary to gunshot wound to the neck during a home robbery. High risk, illicit drug use, currently uses marijuana. His daughter, who lives in the home, abuses uh, opioids and heroin. He's had medications stolen. He's uh, been at a prior pain management practice, and they were planning to put an intrathecal pump in him, and he didn't want the pump, so he came to us. That was kind of the way that he came in. And this is what he said he's taking. He said that they're prescribing him uh, 30 milligram oxycodone a half a tablet TID. And this was his initial eval with us, so a new patient to us. And he was there with his caregiver, and she dispenses the medicine, and she says, I still have 20 remaining from the last prescription, which is at least 13 days of medicine. Now, looking at the PDMP and counting pills, he should have 100 pills, not 20. Um, so he, he was a little bit short, and he really wasn't able to explain that. And we said, look, we need to get your records. We don't have any records. We need to do urine drug tests, and you need to be willing to discontinue marijuana. The next day, he shows up and says, I'm completely out of oxycodone. Next day. And he says, "Oh, well, I don't overuse. I take a half a pill three times a day. What do you think? Caregiver. caregiver. Overused, diversion, shorted, misplaced. Caregiver. Everyone went right to the caregiver. Yeah. Daughter. Daughter, is that what you are going to say? Yeah. Daughter, caregiver. Okay. Hire his patient himself. I mean, okay. All right, so here, here's what went down. So the caregiver says the nephew was the one that was stealing the oxycodone from the patient so the patient couldn't control his quantities. so she took over the responsibility for safeguarding the medication and she would go to the pharmacy she would fill it and she said the fill dates on the pdmp are correct and she um, had a full bottle of uh, oxycodone in her car because she had just filled the prescription okay this was at a time of transition she had just been with a prior pain practice and, and transitioning she then tells me she's like well i also use marijuana and this is what happened I picked up my drug dealer and his two homies (laughs) this is the caregiver and I needed to stop at a gas station to make change and the line took ten minutes after dropping off my dealer I realized the oxycodone bottle was gone and I wasn't able to get it back now she says I didn't want to lose my job because she had the responsibility to oversee the medicine so she lied she said there were 20 pills there weren't 20 pills so she didn't want to tell the patient who's her employer and she thought, well, because you're going between practices that basically that would kind of get washed in the, uh, in the shuffle and that we would never notice the fact that these pills were unaccounted for. And um, in this discussion, what was so striking was that ca- the, the patient was unwilling to make a change to his caregiver. He seemed to think that was okay. So we, we kind of had some conversation around that, and, uh, and he left, and I, I never saw him again. Um, but it was quite the interesting interchange to watch. Uh, this thing happened. All right, let's see. Does this program end at 530 or at 540? I mean, sorry, 630? All right. Well, I'll do one more case. you guys okay with that? Okay. All right, 38-year-old male, Crohn's disease, three abdominal surgeries, chronic abdominal pain, just moved from Missouri, taking oxycodone, and, and reports no history, psych, social, family. PDMP was empty because he came from out of state. Uh, UDT was consistent, and the medical records were consistent. He was out two days early on his first script. That was a little concerning. So he was counseled, and we put a do not dispense date on the next prescription. After the pharmacist filled the prescription, the pharmacist came to my office, because they were just a, they had some questions. They were just a little uneasy, but they filled it anyway. How many of you have had a pharmacist come to your office with concerns about a prescription? <laughs> I've had it once. This is it. You, you've had them? Yeah. It's not a common thing, right? And, and, and it's not from a pharmacy like in my building. This is like a local community CVS and they had to drive to our building. So he says, this is what he says. He says that the patient told him that his daughter, the patient's daughter was doing some arts and crafts on the uh, table. And they had set the prescription down and it stuck. And then when they took it off, it caused a hole in the prescription. But the pharmacist said, you know, none of the medication order was missing. The, the drug was there, the dose, the instructions, the check boxes for the security prescription. Everything was fine. But there was this hole in the middle of the prescription. What do, what do you think? That was my do not dispense date. <laughs> Just tore it out. Okay. Oh, good. Oh, good. That was my last case. That's right. Okay, I'm just going to do the question. We talked in the beginning. You guys got it right. That uh, Which of the following is false regarding definitive urine drug test having a methamphetamine level? That is that a positive result is always definitive of illicit drug use. That's not true. Sometimes a positive result can be nasal spray. It could be a lab issue. What's the primary source? You guys got that right. Friends or family? Last question. A positive definitive result on a urine toxicology report always indicates that the tested substance is present in the specimen. And that is false because you have to consider lab error. In terms of uh, looking at your uh, your results, so consider these aberrant behaviors really in the totality of the clinical situation. Have a differential diagnosis, just like you would do for anything else. Really know your substance abuse factors. Learn about your referral sources. Stand behind your medical determination. You really have to balance the benefits of chronic uh, su- uh, controlled substances, you know, versus their harms. Document everything. It's okay not to prescribe and. One of the things that I think has served uh, well over the years is to remember it's the patient with the problem, you are there to try and help. So when they come in, they put it on you and say, well, I just took my last pill. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to act. So with that, thank you for uh, staying and participating.